0: Welcome to this episode of Woman to Woman Podcast Series. Our guest today is Leslie Blair. She is the Vice President of Marketing at HutchMed, a global biopharmaceutical company. For the last 25 years, she's been engaged in the commercialization of innovative medicines to improve and enhance patients' lives around the world. Leslie found her passion for drug discovery working with clinicians and researchers at Tufts Medical Center in Boston, seeing the powerful impact that innovative medicines could bring to patients. She earned her MBA at Georgetown University and undergraduate degrees from Trinity College and Colby Sawyer College. Attributing much of her success to the creative writing and critical thinking skills she learned as a philosophy major, Leslie is a strong proponent of liberal arts education and currently sits on the advisory board to the School of Arts and Science at Colby Sawyer. Her view on leadership is if you encourage your team to learn, to create, to make mistakes without letting them fall, they will surpass your expectations tenfold. Hi Leslie, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you with us today.
1: Thanks, Divy. I'm really excited to be here.
0: So you have a really cool job, um, very exciting. And based on our conversation, I wanted to start with your college life. So what, what did you do in college? And then what do you do today? How are these two things related and how has that really
1: helped you in what you do today? It's a a very interesting question. And I think uh, when you hear that my major in college was philosophy, you might not see how that necessarily translates to becoming the uh, vice president of marketing in a pharmaceutical industry. I chose philosophy after taking a couple of classes. I had to take a general education class and I absolutely fell in love with the subject matter. had a very interesting series of discussions with my mom to tell her that I was changing my major from business to philosophy and poor woman just thought no one will ever hire this girl she's doomed and and yet I was determined that I was going to study a subject matter that I really loved. And uh, it, it actually, I think, um, even though it was a little non-traditional, has helped me enormously in my career and, and coming up in my career. Uh, one of the, the most important things that philosophy um, as a subject matter teaches is sort of rational thinking. And um, a, a lot of the work that I had to do in school was writing, and I had to write argumentative kind of papers. So here's my position, and here's why. And when you're in a subject matter like philosophy, there's no right and there's no wrong. You just have to to be able to have an opinion and articulate that it actually kind of translates you know the older i get and the, the more fluid things seem and the less factual things can be including science itself it, it's very interesting to see how um a well-placed argument can sway opinion can position a product and can help people understand and that's i feel like a large part of what i do in marketing
0: so do you think the lessons you learned in philosophy also help you be a better leader
1: Well, that's an interesting question. I hope so, because I think one of the things that that one has to consider um, are the the not only two sides of a story, but the multiple facets that are involved in any particular subject matter. And so one of the most important qualities, I think, in leadership is uh, the leader's ability to understand multiple opinions and points of view, how to best incorporate those into a potential solution. There's always more ways to solve a problem than would first seem apparent.
0: You mentioned you kind of went into college for business and then changed your major. So clearly going in, the intent was to do something in mm-hmm. business. So how did you get there? Like, was that something you grew up with? Was that part of something your family did that you were gravitating towards that specific major.
1: I'm a kid of the, you know, the late '60s and '70s, and so grew up in a rather traditional household. Uh, my mom was a teacher. My dad, uh, you know, was a salesman and a sales leader in a variety of industries, and so that was sort of my perspective. I was raised in that time period where girls can do anything. And my mom was very encouraging of, of that um, attitude and perspective. And you know, I was good at school and uh, learned to achieve and got the value of good grades, which I think can be a hindrance sometimes too, to some of our, our own feelings as women of self-worth and value. But uh, for me, the, the career path forward and the, and the way I should go in college was what I saw in my environment and that was my dad who was uh, who was in business and industry. And so that was sort of a feeling that I had from the beginning. but as I said, I, once I fell in love with that subject matter, I was off on my own at that point and sort of forging my my own path. After working after college, I did find my way back to get my MBA at Georgetown and uh, but I had a little bit more purpose and understanding of where I wanted to go and why.
0: Did your mom ever say I told you so?
1: She hasn't yet. I wouldn't put it past her though.
0: (laughs) So a lot of kids get influenced by what their friends are aspiring to be or what their friends are looking at, whether it be a certain school or whether it be a certain major. Did you ever have that?
1: It's funny. Um, I just uh, visited with a couple of old high school friends um, last week. So it was a really nice reunion. We hadn't seen each other for a long time. And we all sort of went into the humanities in, in one way, shape or form. My one friend is now a, a teacher at a prestigious um, preparatory school up in New Hampshire. My other friend's in real estate. So I don't know. I don't know if that uh, if their opinions really impacted me, I think it was probably more the heavy influence of my, um, of my parents and, and looking around at what, you know, I could see other women doing.
0: Did you have any other influencers apart from your parents?
1: Growing up, uh, I, you know, I, I think influencers in life, I really didn't, I felt like I didn't have a lot of real strong role models in terms of becoming a professional woman. Most of the, you know, the moms in my, um, uh, and, the, and the women in my neighborhood were moms and aunt and, and grandmom and, and everybody else were, were sort of in that sort of suburban, typical suburban New England upbringing. And so, and at that point in time, I think it was, you know, the the start of the women's movement. It was just beginning. And so I, I did see some of the early leaders. And I remember in high school reading like Betty Friedan, she preceded me a little bit, but, but reading her and just having those uh, women do rallies and speak up for women's rights was impactful. I don't I can't really even today articulate how specifically it impacted me, but I know it, it felt right that that this particularly was an injustice and or that there should be more opportunities for women than what I saw at the time as a kid. So I think that sort of maybe lit a bit of a fire into saying, so I'm going to forge my own way and I'm going to figure out what it is that is going to sort of f- feed my intellect and, and my soul.
0: So looking back now, would you have done anything different? whether it be choosing a college or going, doing a certain major or going a certain path?
1: I can say yes and I can say no to that. I really believe that circumstances and timing are so random. It could be a million different ways, right? I, I could be a, an auto mechanic. I could be a, an accountant. I, I actually had an accounting job. I just think it's it's the circumstances that present at the time I think it's a person's receptivity to what life and experience presents that um, could and should inform. Uh, not a person who's big on regret. We all make mistakes. That's almost definitive with being human. I think it would be far too easy in, to live in a, in a space of woulda, shoulda, coulda. And that's just not where I am and it just it seems that I have better things to think about. I could have done things differently. I'm happy where I am. I've, I've certainly had struggles and moments where I have thought, oh gosh, what was I thinking? But uh, at the end of the day, I've tried to make choices, changes when something doesn't feel right. I'm a huge believer in one's gut and um, what our guts tell us. I think there's, there was an article I read recently. I want to say it was in Forbes about the um, the gut brain and your heart brain and your brain brain. I think your, your gut is a very intelligent, um, probably ancient reaction, but uh, I've always encouraged myself and my, and my kids to listen to that.
0: Yeah, that's so true. I did it um, sometime back to, you know, seven out of 10 times, if you go with your gut and strength, you won't be wrong. 70% probability is pretty good.
1: I believe it. And you probably talked yourself out of something, you know, rationally that you regret after. I know I have.
0: True. So um, you had different roles. You just mentioned you also had an accounting job. Out of all the mm-hmm. roles you have held, what was the most fun role and what was the most challenging one?
1: Um, well, I've had... I think I've had a lot of fun all the way along. My first job out of college was that accounting job at a car dealership. That was so much fun. Cause I, I didn't realize how much I love cars until I worked at a car dealership. So it was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, you know, at that part of my career, first job out of college, I was just trying to figure things out, like how to, what can I do to pay the bills? How do I maintain my own independence and, and apartment and all that kind of stuff? And how do I, and it was much easier for me to afford a car, which was always important, right? So how do I get my own car? And I got a little employee discount. So that was helpful. Accounting was de- definitely, I love it. I love math. I love my, I love numbers to this day. I love doing a spreadsheet and PNLs and building a, a forecast. Uh, but that was not, um, I think my life's passion to be an accountant. So um so my next job sort of went to um, uh, work in healthcare and that was just circumstance. I knew I needed a change no idea where to go, talked to a few people, and somebody said, hey, I got something up here at a teaching hospital in Boston. I said, yeah, let's try that. That sounds good. And um, working there in a lot of administrative roles, including uh, helping the investigators at that teaching hospital with some of their clinical trials, that's where I absolutely fell in love with drug discovery and seeing firsthand how clinical trials were run and orchestrated, and most importantly, the impact that these new discoveries had directly on patients lives and health was really the passion that I found. And I knew that this is something I want to do. I need to be involved and in close to this for the, for, for my career, because that is, you know, I, I spoke earlier about feeding my, my intellect and my soul. And that was something that was really very close to my soul and, and to my heart um, impacting patient care. Having had the opportunity to work with uh, men and women in the pharmaceutical industry, I have to admit, and I kind of joke about it, but it's kind of true that I noticed those pharmaceutical girls had way nicer shoes than I did. So for the love of good leather, I decided to get my MBA. So that's when I went into that. And, it, and I was, you know, I had always been envious of kids in school when I was in grammar school and high school said, so I know exactly what I'm going to do when I grow up. And, uh, I felt really ripped off after college. I'm like, why do I not know what I want to do? I have no idea. I don't know where I'm going. I felt really directionless. So I just put one foot in front of the other, kind of fake it till you make it and stayed open to what the environment and the world had to offer me and uh, luck, probably circumstance, definitely um, had the opportunity to find something that really sparked that, um, that joy and that passion. And so follow that. And so you'll laugh because I still think like medicine and guts and all that stuff is kind of ooky, but what drugs can do is absolutely amazing. So it would, I could never be involved in the patient care aspect of it. And um, I really, at that point, was very far gone from a scientific expertise perspective. So I thought, here's what I'm good at. I'm good at the mathy things. I'm good at being very customer focused, which is, I think, a a real pillar of my success. And um, what I would recommend to anybody who's going into a marketing field is to really focus on that customer perspective.
0: Speaking of passions, you had a passion for figure skating as a kid.
1: Oh my gosh, you remember that? I did. Oh my gosh, I really wanted to go to the Olympics so not talented, but, um, I could definitely do some spins and some jumps and some high jumps. I did. I did love that. I I don't skate anymore. My knees don't cooperate with me, but it is still something that, uh, that I love the cold, the speed. It's not super dangerous, but you know, if you wipe out it hurts. So, um, so all of that stuff, I'm a bit of a daredevil.
0: The only thing I know about is being wiped out. (laughs) Yes. I'm usually, I have no speed. I have no talent. I'm the one on the side rails annoying everybody else because I don't want to come in the middle. That's me.
1: You can get it from a roller coaster or skiing or anything else too. So there's lots of ways to get your thrills.
0: Baby, more power to you. You could do spins. That's way more than I can think of.
1: Trick is not to go up on your toe.
0: I I will keep that in mind. (laughs) There you go. <laughs> if you had to work on a few skills that you didn't you think you could have benefited from as a child or as a young adult, what would those skills be?
1: I would think maybe less on the skills part and more on the frame of reference parts. So I think some of the things, you know, when you look back and and I'm at a point in life where, where I can do that, the biggest challenges I had was measuring myself by grades, by um, achievements, by some sort of manufactured construct of success. I was always praised and rewarded for being a straight A student, for being a good girl. I may be dating myself, it may be a bit generational, but I think there are probably enough remnants of the the good girl syndrome, even with some of your younger listeners that, that this will resonate. And I think that's probably something I wish I had learned earlier, which is it's not about achievement. It's not about accolades. It's really for me, about learning and staying curious, being able to impact, and most importantly, understanding the level of that impact that you are able to execute in the world on friends on associates with whom you work understood that the world is far less rule driven than i thought it was i don't know where i would have where i would have ended up i feel like i'm getting there still it's like an evolution but uh, you know i think understanding that really all of these barriers and hurdles and um and rules are anything other than just constructs for for life and for grading and for other things, Um, I think we do ourselves a disservice. I wish I had learned that earlier.
0: So we as women want to ace everything, right? Whether it be our careers, whether it be our college degrees or even motherhood. So a lot of young professional women run through these challenges, right? Of balancing the family with your career. How did you deal with that? in your career?
1: Yeah, I, um, I I ran into a lot of brick walls early on. I have two children, they're now uh, 18 and 22. But in those early days, and, and you know, as you go through your career, there's, for me anyway, there were stages, right? There's figuring out where you wanna go in what direction. Then there's sort of gathering that expertise. And then there's really understanding how you can take that expertise to leadership and, and to moving from there. But getting that expertise part, that's hard, right? And that takes a lot of dedication and it takes a lot of time. Now, I'm not somebody who's a great multitasker. I've tried and that's how I know I'm not good at it. I think one of the things that that I had to learn for my own sanity and, and for my families was that I can't do everything. I'm lucky enough to have an amazing um, partner in my husband who is and remains as hands-on a parent as he is. He also has a career. So we were able to find the right balance and we've each taken some, um, you know, jobs, particular jobs so that we could devote, the other one could have more time to do what he or she needed to do. So I think the most important thing from my perspective is having that partnership understanding and accepting your limitations and helping your children to understand your limitations as well. You know, I I was just reading a book, I was on vacation, and and there was something in the book that said, you know, the saddest day of a kid's life is when that child realizes that mom and dad aren't perfect. And um, it's like heartbreak It's your first heartbreak, I guess, was the was the phrase that was used. And so so I figured I, I knew that I've, I experienced it myself and I said, I better get that out of the way soon. So they just know from an early age, and we always made a joke of it when they would say you're the worst mom. I'm like, "I know that's terrible for you though. Cause I'm the only one you have. So, you know, they're, they're part of the family and you know, they, they've contributed my children as well. And, um, but I have, as has my, as has my husband taken, you know, different roles. Like I always worked in the US, had the opportunity for for a brief period of time to live before we had children to live overseas. But travel was an important part of my career. And, and I loved it. And I love traveling. I still do. Uh, when I was in my global role, I spent a good deal of my career in global, my, my husband was um, much more stationary, or we would work it out, I'd have to have to give up trips, I'd have to send somebody in my place, which is a little bit easier to do when, when you have a team under you and Zara, you need to go to, you know, Istanbul or, or Budapest or somewhere fabulous. And, um, and I'll stay, I'll stay here because I have other responsibilities. It's all okay.
0: If you basically had to choose a team, you just mentioned if you have a team, you have a lot more flexibility. What kind of attributes do you look for? A lot of discussions we have is people think that they have certain yeah. skill set and they can only go into jobs that require that skill set. They don't look at parallelly mm-hmm. how those skills are transferable. So what would you advise um, such people, you know, when they're trying to join somebody's team, what should they pitch apart from just the skills that are listed?
1: Yeah, I think um, there's there's lots of um, areas for advice here. And the first thing I would say is I think women have a tendency, and I think this is borne out even in current research, have a tendency to look at a job description and say, "Mm, I can only do 50% of those things. I'm not going to apply. Her, Her male counterpart, Will look at that job description and go, God, I'm a shoe-in. I can do like 50% of this. And that little subtle mind not mind shift is so critical. And I just thought that facts bore that out, made me feel less like a like a freak and a little bit braver to say, look, I'm not sure I can do this, but that's okay. Every job, hopefully, for every person has an element of growth in it. So just because you can't do it. If you have the passion and the curiosity and a vague understanding of what you would do or where it's going, I think that's really appealing to a hiring manager. So when I'm putting together a team, I'm looking for individuals who bring diverse perspectives, skills. So it's like I tell my son who just applied to college, right? They're not looking for, you know, you need to check these 20 boxes. And if you only check 15, you're not in. No, they're trying to build a class. Um, And so college admissions officers are trying to build a class of diverse students who have different interests, come from different backgrounds, because why? They supplement the education, who who you are working with, who you're going to school with. So I look for those types of things as well, differences of experiences, you have an idea of where the job is going and what your experiences, as normal or weird as they are, can offer and contribute to that job. You need to tell the hiring manager how you fit and what you will do. That's
0: great advice. You mentioned your son. So first of all, congratulations on his graduation. That's awesome. So finally both kids out of school system. That's
1: I know. Almost almost an empty nester. The first one came back after she graduated from college. So but she has a job. So that's good.
0: Then that qualifies the almost.
1: Yeah. Almost empty. So
0: so do you think if if we look at our careers as our family grows? are there stages that you would say uh, the first stage is really to your point finding that partner who can really be a true partner in understanding and really taking that load off in a way so that the family life and both your careers are you know moving in the right direction at the right pace and then your second mm-hmm. is really growing that career once you have achieved that balance and the third stage is really when you know you have a little bit you have definitely the expertise you have a lot of experience And you have achieved everything you had set out for. So what is this third phase made up of for you?
1: Well, gosh, this is fun, right? So first of all, I don't have to change diapers and I don't have to feed people. So that part's really amazing. And then the second part is, uh, you know, I had a wonderful mentor. I've, I've, I've been lucky to have some great mentors throughout my career. But I had one who really helped me as I started to transition into leadership role. Right. So so moving from a level of expertise and I'm I'm good at forecasting, I'm good at putting together a, a marketing campaign, I'm good at understanding customer experience. Whatever your skill sets are and your levels of expertise now, um, as a leader, how does your your job change? And so this mentor told me, you know, because I was in one of our sessions, I was kind of asking his advice about, I'm like, I got this guy and he's not doing what I want him to do. This is like a colleague, right? And so I, and he's being a jerk and I, how do I get this jerk to do what I want him to do? So I was talking about me and how everything was impacting me. And my mentor just sort of stopped me and said, Leslie, you're a leader now. It's not about you anymore. It's about them and what they need. From you, and that really was one of the most impactful things that happened in my career, and helped hasten the transition and the effective transition for me going to a level of expertise to more of a leadership role. And, and so, then reflecting on uh, some of the leaders who really helped me along the way, both before and after that particular conversation with that mentor, you know, I, I've really had some some great leaders who lived that, who pulled out the best in me, even when I myself was a leader. You know, um, give me the room and the space to think and grow to encourage me and to challenge, you know, I would say the big, one of the big differences is challenge early in my career felt like I'm not doing it right. The boss isn't happy. Whereas a challenge now is like, Hmm, that's a new perspective. I hadn't thought about, is there another way I can look at this? Is there another Uh, way we can solve for this, if if this is our objective. So I think going through all those phases, I've tried to read, I've tried to take some courses. And I feel that today, my mind is so much more open to um, different perspectives, and almost I can't say different realities, because then I sound a little crazy, but just different ways of experiencing um, situations, our environment, our relationships, it's really interesting. There's, and I just know now there's no right answer. There's no right way to do it. So I think the best way now that the the most important thing that I've learned and sort of that keeps me even and on keel is, is just three kind of main pillars by which I try to operate. And that's being honest, operating with integrity and having the humility that we should all have as human beings. Nobody's a villain in my hero story. We all have stories where we're the heroes, but, um, everybody's a hero in his or her own story. And so um, just understanding other people's perspectives, I think that's, that's really some great advice. Even your boss, your boss doesn't know everything. You might not want to tell him or her that, but you might want to help them in their realization. That may be a, a discussion for another day.
0: Another topic for sure. Growing up in your career as a woman, did you face any challenges and what did you do to overcome those challenges?
1: I have to say, I feel pretty lucky. I've had very few of the sort of stereotypical uh, female challenges. I've seen them, though. I have seen them. Blessedly less today than I did, um, you know, 20 years ago.
0: So in terms of behavior, what are some of the key characteristics that you think we should work on as women at work trying to make a career? And also some of the things that you see on a regular basis that we should stay away from?
1: So I think as, as women, there's a few things I would recommend. So I think we can um, ask, be curious. I was always told that that was a little impolite, but um, um, so I, but I love that I, people respond in my experience, both men and women really well to when you're when you're genuinely curious about what they're doing or what they're saying or how they're trying to say it. Sometimes it's hard to articulate, so ask. Ask for clarity. Ask for new challenges in your career. Right. So ask more. Ask for yourself. And sort of the corollary to that is listen and be be good at listen. I did uh, have to say one of the things that I did in my career that didn't help me very very much is I would listen to people in order to respond. Right. So. I didn't listen to understand as the as the saying now goes. And when I when I heard that, listen to understand, not to respond, I'm like, oh, that's what I've been doing wrong all this time. It really makes a difference because I have I have literally answered questions that weren't asked of me because I thought I knew where the, the questioner was going and I just sort of beat him or her to the punch. Listen to understand, not to respond, and be present in meetings, right? And so I think that's the other thing when we're listening, we're in a meeting, we're somewhere else, it's particularly hard, I find, when we're on Zoom calls all day, be present, be in the moment, um, understand the dynamics of, you know, if you're in a team setting, or in a meeting, understand the dynamics and what's going on and try and stay off your phone and off your emails, even though you have, you know, 900 things to do because we as women tend to make lists of all the things we have to get done. And we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to do it by a certain time. If I had things to do over again, I would be present more and distracted less. I think the other thing, and you've heard this theme from me before is be curious. So be curious about your customers, be curious about your business, be curious about the perspectives of your colleagues and your teammates in marketing in particular be curious 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 about your customers and what makes them tick the last thing that we should do for sure is make sure we take time to feed ourselves rather than to feed our job responsibilities you know responsibilities to our families and and friends those are all important but make sure you take time to feed your soul Whatever that is for you, I've been the worst at it almost my whole career. And I say it even now and I'm like, oh, crap, because I didn't even do my exercises today. So I know like I'm guilt. It's the hardest thing for me. So I would say, but that's so important because the more centered and grounded you are, the better leader you will be.
0: That, that is so true, though, especially in these times, right? And right after the pandemic, we are all trying to get back to work. There are so many new dynamics, you know, everything's changed in the last one and a half years and this is something that was a lot of focus last year. To your point, I think we need to keep it front and center in our minds as we go back, because you just can't slip back into the way things were before.
1: Exactly. And I have heard, and I'm, and I'm guilty of it too, that, that actually we probably spend even more time working, because uh, we don't have the commute time to sort of shut things down, so.
0: Yeah, no, no, shutting the door.
1: <laughs> exactly, shut the door, that's a good thing, or shove your laptop under your bed or wherever you're working.
0: True. So you had a chance to speak on the Senate floor, the congressional Senate floor. Is is that okay? Do you want to talk about it?
1: Yeah, I think it was really a very pivotal moment in my life that really is a, you know, my, uh, I'll start at the beginning. My, my sister Um, There were just two of us growing up and my sister was uh, killed on September 11th, 2001. It's a horrible, awful way to have um, what's important thrown back up at you. We can get very caught up in the day-to-day and and there's a a lot of excitement and drama actually that can come from from our day-to-day lives. But um, at the end of the day, I, I think we are... And we live for those relationships that we have. So there were horrible times in, indeed, but it was such a pivot point for me to sort of say, nothing else really matters all that much other than the ones that we hold dear and close. So on the fifth year anniversary, I, I did have the um, the opportunity to reflect on five years post 9-11. I grew up in Massachusetts and, and I'm part of a, a community there. I serve on an advisory board for uh, some of uh, charitable work that's done Uh, by a fund established in the days after 9-11 and we still continue to do that work part of what we do is to uh, put on an annual commemoration ceremony so we will do that again this year in just a few months so where i've been asked to speak again so it's uh, sort of coming full circle at at that time i was able to reflect on you know what 9-11 means what love means what loss means. And, uh, it was, um, very cathartic for me. My, my son was just about uh, three at the time and, uh, he had never known his aunt. I was trying to, uh, write this speech that I've been asked to give and, um, I was looking through um, something that the Mass 9-11 organization has put together called Portraits of Remembrance. And there were just all these beautiful stories and faces of those who were were killed on that day. And we were looking through some of the photos and the stories that uh, people had posted. And my son, who was kind of itchy to get off my lap, he was sitting with me. He's like, he just said, it's too much it's too much and that was the the theme of of what i said it was just all too much it was too many people it was too much but the way that um, we in massachusetts the way that we as americans I think responded, recovered, and bounced back. And we see those same themes of resilience today post-pandemic um, was really what I what I spoke about and uh, was quite surprised and honored when one of the Massachusetts congressmen asked to put that into the congressional record. So so that's something that not many people know about me and wouldn't be surprised. So my mom had copies made and they're literally framed. I don't think I have it up anymore, but I, I had it hanging up. My mother does. She was very proud.
0: Yeah, we're so sorry for your loss though.
1: I appreciate that. It is it is hard and it's hard to, uh, it's part of who I am and it, it is hard to ex- talk to people about it. And I, and I think those of us who have, have gone through loss and, and most of us have, again, it's part of just that humanity. You just never know who you're talking to, right? And so we just need to be gentle with each other. It's a good lesson for all of us, regardless of our situation. Yeah, well said. So any closing comments? The closing thoughts particularly for some of the younger women who, who are listening, I would encourage you to just do you. Um, there's no right. There's no wrong. There's just you. There's the people you love and the people you cherish, and hopefully you'll have colleagues who become those people for you sometimes too, uh, and that's okay and that's great. But it really is all about relationships. Um, the field that I'm in in medicine is is rewarding as well, and I take great value. And even on a on a bad day, I still can look down and say there's something that I did today that hopefully got a medicine closer to a patient who needs it. And that's a great feeling. And so that would be my hope for um, your listeners is that they find something that gives them that joy, that feeds their soul. You're not being judged. It isn't a contest. So make sure that you are happy doing what you're doing.
0: Thank you so much for your time, Leslie. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Divya. It was so lovely to talk with you.
0: Thank you.